The Athletic. Hello and welcome everybody to The View from the Lane, the multi-award-winning Tottenham Hotspur podcast from The Athletic. I'm Danny Kelly and with me today are The Athletic's Jack Pitbrook and James Moore. And on today's episode, we'll discuss the following. Um, whether Spurs do in fact concede too many chances. Ryan Sessegnon, bless him, injury to insult. We'll preview Palace at home and we've got a couple of bits of nostalgia for you. One, a very triumphant Spurs team and one run by the first team that uh, probably could do with being forgotten, but we won't let it lie. Now, you've got an article which I believe in the modern parlance drops tomorrow on The Athletic, Jack, um, about the amount of chances we seem to concede. Are they, First, we'll tell us about the chances, and then we'll work out whether the chances conceded is actually translating into goals conceded. Yeah, so I was just trying to unpick what what is it specifically that Tottenham were doing be- much better at the start of the season than they were in this kind of middle third of the season where... I think results and performances have not been quite so good. And I was having a look around, and what what's immediately obvious through even a cursory look at the numbers, Danny, is that Tottenham concedes so many chances. And, and so rather than looking at, at you know shots conceded or, or big chances c- c- faced, or the, the, the particular metric that, that I've used to, for this article is expected goals against, which obviously takes into account the quality of chance that they're facing, and it's now obviously a you know, commonly used metric within football. On that basis, overall, over the course of the season, Tottenham are conceding an average of 1.74 expected goals per game which is puts them in the in the kind of bottom half of the Premier League on that particular metric so i think it you know it's much nearer say Luton Town who've got the worst in the league 2.09 than it is near Arsenal who've got 0.71 expected goals against per game i think there are only only seven other teams are worse than Spurs in this metric so but that that's one thing but what's even more striking to me is that if you go back over the last eight years, which is when Opta have this this data for, Tottenham's current expected goals against average per game is significantly worse than it has been at any other point in that period. It's actually almost more than double what it was in the peak Pochettino years. And so my article basically is looking at why this is, how damaging is it, because it's clearly not that damaging, Danny, because they're fifth. So we can't, we, you know, I think we can go a little bit overboard with these things saying that, you know, as if as if the point of the game is to achieve good expected goals for and against numbers rather than to win the game itself. And also looking at whether, to what extent this is either a kind of inbuilt problem with Ange Ball or is it something which is kind of solvable within Ange Ball, which I, I hope is the case. We'll come back to why and the upshot and why we're doing still okay if you look at those variants. Um, hello, Vicario. James, are you are you aware watching the games? You know, off uh, partic- you know at home particularly, where you're there that, that the Spurs are conceding these chances. Do the figures may, uh, pass your eye test and your sniff test, James? Yeah, I think they probably do. I, I mean, I think the the big difference in terms of the chances Spurs have conceded in the last six or seven games, in comparison to those very successful first ten games that Jack mentioned purely based on the eye test, would be the fact that they seem to be conceding one, maybe two, incredibly, incredibly good chances 
during those games. I, I don't think you often see a game where Spurs are conceding like a constantly being played through, where this high line is constantly being exploited and the opposition are constantly getting good chances. I know we reference that Chelsea game every week, but that would probably be the only one where it felt like they were completely being torn to shreds. And obviously, as we've said many, many times, there was kind of some mitigation. And even though some people, Daniel, do disagree that... So I should say that's Daniel Kelly, not Daniel Levy, just to be clear. And nobody calls me Daniel except my very first girlfriend, but I'm still matey. So you've now joined a very <laughs> strange... You've got a very strange place in my mind. But oh, my goodness. Do you think if you met Daniel Levy, would he call you Daniel? He would call me Mr. Kelly, as always. Yeah, that is true, yeah. Yeah. Client number two, three, you know. Um, <laughs> it, it feels like there are just slight things going wrong. And obviously in the Wolves game, again, we talk about mitigation. Porro and Udogi are such important players tactically for that team. And again, similar to Chelsea, you could argue with Tosso whether they should have done something different in this instance. I would say possibly yes. But, I mean, I think the numbers actually show in Jack's piece, and we don't want to give too much away given it hasn't been published yet, but actually things are over this 10-game period. It's a rolling 10-game average of XG for and against. There's a graphic of this in the piece. And he's actually trending upwards again now in the right direction. Both for is going up and against is going down. Yeah, I think it's... When I started doing the research for this, I thought, when you initially see this kind of headline figure of 1.74 expected goals against, you initially think that there is something critically flawed with the manager's approach, which could lead to such a negative outcome. But if you if you look at it in more detail, you can see that if you look at those first 10 games of the season, Spurs' average XG against per game was uh, 1.27, which at that point was the sixth best number in the league far closer to the numbers of Manchester City and Arsenal, who are generally just below one. And I know it's only 10 games, but I think 10 games is probably enough to say that Ange Ball, for want of a better word, can be defensively secure. It can stop teams from from creating too many chances. And so really, what Tottenham struggled with was a huge spike in their numbers immediately after the Chelsea game. like that In that 10-game spell from the Chelsea game through to the Manchester United game in January which was when Van der Ven and Romero came back. Over those 10 games, Tottenham had the second worst numbers in the league on this rank, on this metric. The only team who was worse than them, of course, was Newcastle United, who have been disastrously bad at the back f- for months now. And since Van der Ven and Romero have returned, so that's only, admittedly only, I think, the last, what, six league games, uh, the numbers have come back down again to a sort of high, but not unhealthily, 1.59 expected goals against per game. So... Overall, I'm not like. I think doing this piece hasn't made it has not made me as pessimistic about the back end of the season as I thought it would. But clearly, this is a an area where Tottenham are going to have. This is like the main thing that I think they're going to have to improve over the final third of the season. Yeah, and, and a last word from me on this: you need to support the manager here a little bit because we can see from our North London neighbours that you can play football. Um, which allows you to score three, four, five goals a game and have a very low um, expectation of conceding. But that's taken a little bit of a while, a lot longer than six, seven months to put into place. Last thing on this, uh, James, has seeing these numbers, has it made you appreciate even more uh, Vicario's role this season? Yeah, I mean, that has to be the main thing you take away from that. And look, I don't think anyone's going to really be surprised by the fact that statistically he's kind of the best performing goalkeeper in the Premier League, even if the clean sheet tallies and goals against column suggest otherwise. Uh, but he he has 
statistically speaking, prevented the most goals of any goalkeeper in the Premier League this season. Which, I, I, again, I would say does pass the eye test. Um, rather less pleasing news during the week. And you may say, why are you even talking about this? Because it, 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 it almost is irrelevant to Spurs' first team these days. But Ryan Sessegnon has put out a statement a couple of days ago on his social media confirming that he's undergone surgery on the other hamstring, the one that wasn't um, under the knife not so long ago. That's following an injury sustained in the under-21s match against West Ham on the 17th of February. And here we have a promising young player whose career has been, uh, it's a cliche, but he's plagued by injury. Um, I have to say, on a personal level, this is my pet hate in football. Not just Spurs players, any player of talent, particularly when they're young, whose career just they can't get going because they, their body keeps breaking down. And I know people will say all kinds of things and we'll come on to that. It's beginning to look pretty bleak, James, uh, for the future for Ryan at Spurs, much as I wish him every every success in his recovery. I mean, given the position he plays, it's really hard to tell whether he'd fit in with Postacoglu's style of football because I think the fullbacks, as we kind of established with Porro over the summer and into the season, I don't think we necessarily had an expectation, even though maybe we should have done, that he was going to really thrive in the way he has in that inverted fullback role. And I mean, Sessegnon is obviously like a very technically gifted player. And he also has, in the past, been able to use explosive pace to get around the outside and get balls across the penalty area or get into the penalty area. You know, he had a season of phenomenal. He scored like 16 goals in the championship, I think. But, I mean, you could argue that he may end up losing a bit of that pace and then rely more on the technical skills and actually be maybe slightly better suited to that kind of role. But, I mean, look, that's kind of hypotheticals upon hypotheticals. I mean, I think it's quite easy to forget that in the first half of last season, he played... That was probably maybe the only time he was like a regular in the first team at Spurs since he signed in 2019. And he played or was or started or was involved in more or less every game in the first like half of last season. And so up until the Manchester City game, the Premier League game at home in February, and then he got the injury after that. But I, I don't really remember what we were saying about Ryan Sessegnon in the first half of last season. But I don't, I don't remember us ever feeling like it was a problem. No, I think I think the the general feeling was that he was more suited to Conte's three at the back and two wing backs that, than he had been even at fullback. We were hoping, I think there was a general line of hoping that we would see the real Ryan Sessegnon, the one that, we, that you mentioned there in that season at Fulham, which was in the championship, I think it's fair to say. It feels like a long time ago now, but he was basically rotating with Perisic at left wing back for the first half of last season. Obviously scored that, that good header at Southampton on the opening day of the season. Uh, scored again at Bournemouth. Played at right wing back for the in the famous Champions League game in Marseille where they won to top the Champions League group. And then again, played a little bit after the World I, I was weird. I actually started the last season thinking that he might even go to the World Cup if he had a really good strong start to the season. Obviously, that didn't happen. Then he played a little bit in the sort of after the World Cup when the wheels were starting to come off Tottenham, and then clearly got you know got that injury and then was out for eleven months until the until the Burnley FA Cup game last month. Um, so yeah, it, it does feel like a long time ago now, doesn't it, that he played so much? But there were moments under Conte where you could think they kind of fit. He fitted what they wanted, and you could sort of see a more optimistic outcome for him. In terms of where he fits under Postacoglu, well, clearly he's coming into his last year. I mean, look, I would, I frankly, I would be surprised if he is 
you know a big part of the thinking m- moving forward um just because of what what Postacoglu wants from the players and and the fact that he's had a tough time the sort of encouraging news if there is any is that for as we said firstly it's the other hamstring it's not the hamstring that gave him so much trouble the surgery i gather is less sort of complicated than than the procedures had in the past i imagine this will put him out for it sounds like a sort of three-month injury normally um which probably means we won't see him again this season and the good news is he's still young, so he's got lots of time. And he's had, you know, he's had probably a lot of learning experience at Tottenham, even if he's not played uh, half as much as he might have hoped to. Yeah, last thing on this, maybe you should tell you, and I will accept that the answer, Danny, don't just come off social media. Um, some of the social media stuff aimed at this, and I see it with other injured players, but Sessegnon, of course, comes into my timeline more often because he's a Spurs player. People with no medical qualifications um, are pining that, you know, there must be something wrong with him personally that he's always injured. And some of this is kind of weakness. Some of it is being diagnosed as mental weakness. Maybe I should just ignore it and somehow just continue to get a blister on my index, right index finger from blocking one after another these kind of people. Or is there, you know, football fans, can they say, say something that I'm not seeing? Uh, yeah, I really can't fathom that mentality because... He's an incredibly young man, and I, I, I really cannot get my head around the idea. And I mean, I, the reality is, I suspect most of the people saying these things are even younger men than him. But I, I can't imagine not having massive sympathy for a player like that. And I appreciate it's frustrating when your football club spend big money on a player and they can't play football matches. But imagine how frustrated he is. Yeah. Listen, well said. We'll take a break and you can join us after that. We'll preview the game against Palace on Saturday and a couple of, uh, I think, enjoyable, or one of them's enjoyable, the other one's a bit of a strain, um, bits of nostalgia for you from Spurs in the past. You're listening to The View from the Lane. I'm Danny Kelly. With me today are Jack Pitbrook and James Moore. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Welcome back, everybody. It's the View from the Lane. Um, let's head over to Nostalgia Corner. Uh, James, you want to kick off here? And look, I don't want to—I don't want to paint you into a character corner. But if anybody on the show was going to bring up um, something dismal uh, from Spurs' past, it might—you might argue—have been you. You want to talk about a run of games in January and February of 1999? Um, what was special about them? Well, as I tweeted on whatever day it was, Tuesday, I have absolutely no memory of this run. I remember one game that I went to, but from the 9th of January 1999 to the 27th of February 1999, 
Spurs went on a six-game run of all draws, two of which were 1-1 and four of which were 0-0. Now, I was at the... There's a home game against Wimbledon that I remember being at and I remember it being one of the worst games I've ever been to. But I, I have no memory of any of the other games in that run and as I tweeted, why would I? What I would say is if listeners to this podcast thought that Danny and I were sort of critical and negative about some of the football that Spurs have played in the last few seasons under previous managers. Imagine what this podcast would have been like if we'd been recording it in 1999 with George Graham in charge. Yeah, and the, and the, uh, and the response was that the club got sold at the end of that season to Enoch and we all cheered because here comes Enoch to, to the rescue. Uh, dot, dot, dot. Jack? Do you reckon there's space for a kind of uh, historical reappraisal of the George Graham era? Because he won a trophy. You know, someone saying, well, actually, it was quite good, wasn't it, because of the because of the trophy and, you know, the solidity. Good defensive Sh- record. Shut up, Jack. <laughs> Sorry. Just, I'm just trying to, because Charlie's not here, I feel like I've got to, like, recreate this kind of arguments that Charlie would make. That, that's not very helpful in, 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 in an audio product for me to say, shut up, Jack, but shut up, Jack. <laughs> <laughs> Look, they won that trophy. I enjoyed that day in the League Cup. We'll talk about the League Cup in just a few seconds' time. I, I enjoyed the fact that he'd become such a pantomime figure by that stage that, you know, we never chanted his name. And even that day when he deserved some credit, they'd won that trophy in the was it 1999 League Cup. Yeah, um, Alan Nielsen and all that. We chanted, bloke in a coat and his blue and white army. I loved it. But they wouldn't have won. Maybe see, this is exactly what I was getting at. They wouldn't have won the League Cup in 1999 if they hadn't perfected their defensive method during those like, previous months of Graham Ball. Like you were all slagging <laughs> off Graham, Graham Ball, but really, Graham Ball was what allowed them to get that crucial clean sheet against Leicester City, setting the game up for Alan Nielsen to nick it in the last minute. Graham Ball, tactical master, George Graham masterclass. Graham Ball sounds like some bloke who played for Stoke in the 1970s. James, if I wrote a 5,000 word reconsideration of Graham Ball, would you would you publish Stop it? Stop saying Graham Ball. Just... The problem with you writing a reappraisal of Graham Ball, including Spurs' defensive stability, is then you've got to write a second piece of 20,000 words um, rehabilitating the reputation of Sol Campbell. Because all these games where Spurs are conceding nil has got Sol Campbell on the pitch, haven't they? Don't laugh, Jack. You've opened a can of worms. Why not? Man. It's funny. <laughs> it's funny. Yeah. So, James, don't don't um. Uh, I'm not. Yeah. Don't not commission either of those pieces. It's not getting published. All right. Let's talk about another League Cup final when Sol Campbell didn't play uh, this week in 1973. My goodness, I, I have to brace myself when I say this. 51 years ago, teenage me saw Spurs win the League Cup at Wembley. It's an important game, and I'll tell you why in a minute. First of all, let me tell you that Spurs beat Norwich by a goal to nil. I remember how easy it was to get tickets. The National Stadium held 100,000. Norwich didn't have a huge number of fans. And so you, you trolled up there. Norwich, they were our favourite team at the time because in the quarterfinal, they had beaten Arsenal. And the semi-final, they'd beaten Chelsea. Um, the game itself was utterly forgettable. Spurs had a decent defence, good forwards. Um, World Cup winner Martin Peters, Alan Gilzean and Martin Chivers in his absolute prime, but a rather workaday midfield. Oddly enough, it was in a midfield injury after 23 or 4 minutes into the game that allowed Ralph Coates, he of the fantastic comb-over, to come on. And it was him late in the game who bashed in Spurs' winner from the edge of the box. It was 
the third trophy in three years that Spurs had won. And it was, of course, the last trophy that Phil Nicholson won in his time as Spurs manager. And they didn't win another trophy until 1981, the FA Cup, again at Wembley. And that gap of eight years seemed to me like an absolute chasm. Oh, how I could not have looked forward to what's happening now. And speaking of nostalgia, but more recent variety, two former members of our parish seem to be doing a brilliant job in infecting other clubs with our trophy intolerance, uh, Maurizio Pochettino and Harry Kane. I guess this is more of a question for you, James, as a Spurs fan and um, myself. Um, how do you feel now at this stage of the season about the fortunes of Pochettino and Kane? Let's take Harry first. Uh, I guess my thought on it is that him not winning trophies kind of deflects the banter about Spurs' lack of trophies away from Spurs and on to him. Like if he'd gone to... Basically, we're avoiding the thing of him going to Bayern Munich immediately winning the treble and then it being, let's all laugh at Spurs again. So it does it does kind of deflect that. Uh, although, yeah, I don't... Like I say, I have no issue with him. Really. I would be very happy for him to win. I Actually, now this Leverkusen thing is happening, I would find it incredibly amusing if they collapsed and Munich won the league. Because it would just be fun. Like all the kind of all your hipstery mates on Talksport would all find it really sad, and it, that to me is funny because I'm a wanker. Um, they're the Harry Kane team now, Bayern Munich. How interesting! <laughs> yeah, yeah, they really are. <laughs> they are. What, what, was, what was your say by the way? I think uh, Jonathan Liu wrote a piece for the Guardian this week, basically saying that like like ignore all this banter stuff. This guy's had an amazing season, like the best season any English player has had abroad. And that pro- I mean, in like a proper league, and I think that probably is going to be true. I mean, what English player... I mean, McManaman scored a goal in like a European Cup final or whatever, but... I, Bale has or, scored many goals in Europe, but he's, he's Welsh, so right. He, he is, well, I, yeah. I'm glad you're willing to acknowledge he's Welsh. Yeah, you know, no, he's very Welsh, isn't he? Let's be honest. Please, Welsh listeners, please do not get in contact None with None more Welsh, I think it's fair to say. The real, the good thing, I suppose, is that it's going to be good uh, for my long-standing argument that Kane was better than Lewandowski. If nothing else, if, if it serves no other purpose... Sorry. It proved me right about that. Anyway, Pochettino. Talk about, talk, talk about, talk about pushing against a, an open door. Who, who says Lewandowski is saying Kane? Over the, over the course of the last few years, loads of people, predominantly that's what people have been saying. Maybe not on this podcast, but elsewhere. Lots of people think, Danny, people think all sorts of things. All right, people think, this, we, should change, we should change this name of this podcast to people think all sorts of things. Sp- they do, of, they really do. Speaking of things that people think, Maurizio Pochettino. Yeah. Uh, the, what have been a bit of a roller coaster week for my uh, sort of Schadenfreude on this? I, I really enjoyed it on Sunday. Yeah, um, it was good fun seeing him look sad in the rain. Again, I don't really have a personal problem, but it's Chelsea, so you know, bad luck to you. Uh, but they're going to get to the FA Cup final, aren't they? But then you may Just, get to repeat the experience. Well, the, possibly, the... yeah, which would be heightened, the heightened Schadenfreude. It'd be perfect. But I, I just I can't really revel in it now until until it's all over. And the fact that Chelsea beat Leeds last night as we record and have been drawn against Leicester at home in the quarterfinals. And Leicester, obviously, a good side, better side than Leeds, or at least as good a side as Leeds. Uh, but a home to a championship side who are trying to kind of cement promotion. I, I don't know. I, I just kind of feel like that's a very good draw for Chelsea. And then, obviously, they'll get drawn against Wolves or Coventry in the semi-final. That seems obvious, isn't it? That's what will happen. No, no, because because ha- no, they won't. Because Harry Harry Winks will have put them out in the previous round. Well, that would be great.
takes us then back to domestic matters and, frankly, more important matters of the game against Palace. Again, Saturday, three o'clock at home. Crystal Palace under new management. Oliver Glasner, another all-out attack merchant in his own mind. Um, his famous quotes about uh, nobody um, at school wants to be a defender. I want the professional players to remember that. Look, because of the slight inconsistency of recent results... I say this now with increasing alarm every week. Spurs have to win this game, Jack, don't they? Or will you do a Charlie and give me a, co a complicated algorithm of why Spurs don't have to win any games but still finish in the top four? I would say that complicated yeah. algorithm is like a big picture of Eric Ten Hag. <laughs> yeah. A complicated algorithm is indeed the answer because it's it's UEFA's complicated algorithm which is going, which could allow Tottenham to basically tread water for the final third of the season and scrape into the Champions League via the via the back door. Um, can I just if, say? I, I, can I just say? I, it's not. It's not an algorithm, is it? And the people that know that would be the exact people that would complain. Yeah, about that. it's, it's a formula. Algorithm, right? It's a formula. Yeah. Um, Jack, just a, a matter of interest. Do we not use algorithm as a kind of um, shorthand for all? all... To, as a shorthand for formula. No. No. It's more like Duckwood Lewis. It means everything. Um, it still doesn't get me past that. Uh, is the Crystal Palace game? Anyway, Crystal Palace at home. Yeah, is, okay, is the yeah. Crystal Palace game? <laughs> uh, is it a, a must-win game? No, there's ton there's tons of games left. You know they could draw it, and people, you know, I'd, people would get annoyed, understandably. But I don't think it's a huge. I don't think it's an absolute must-win. I think there's there's still a bit of wiggle room. I mean, clearly they need to play. To me, I think it's actually more to do with can they play better? You know, can they? They've not been playing well recently. I think this is a game where if they play well. If they play well and they unfortunately draw, I would come away thinking, right, well, at least they can play well and they're just going to play well for the, the final games of the season. They'll probably get enough points. I think they do need to win, really. I mean, probably not mathematically, given, especially given United at, at City. So, uh, you know, your expectation would be that they're going to get beaten or hope expectation is going to be that they're going to get beaten. <sighs> and then it kind of, you know, would maintain that buffer even if Spurs did lose but I, I just think it's just a really good time to win the game open up a six-point gap again have a bit more wiggle room then that Villa game is a massive game for finishing fourth rather than finishing top five if you know what I mean it just feels like it takes quite a bit of the pressure off that although obviously it's a massive game uh, and obviously like confidence momentum whatever else I, I just I think drop and I know we had this two seasons ago with Southampton and Wolves, but I think dropping points or losing in successive home games against teams they will have expected to beat would be quite bad. I don't. I think it'd be a bad time for that. Uh, not that it's ever really a good time. Uh, but I, I would be fairly positive. I mean, the, the injury news on Udogi and Pro, which we've not had yet, and I guess we'll get from Postecoglou on Friday, will probably have quite a big bearing on that. But. I, I don't know. I'd be amazed if they could possibly play as badly as they did against Wolves. I mean, maybe I'm really cursing it there, but I just can't see it as any way they play as badly as that. They were so bad in that game. that More or less every element of the team, element of the system, was under par or not working. And I just think they'll just be way better, just purely on the basis of percentages. Yeah, and if you want to do the, the, the Danny Kelly department of straw clutching, Crystal Palace's best defender, Mark Gay. Um, is out. Um, that that can't that can't help them and their planning. Well, Klasner won't care if he doesn't like defenders. Well, he won't he, be bothered. He he he's very he, in his mind. He wants the team to go flat out and attack, attack, attack. And they did have a, a decent win, didn't they, in their first game under him? And we shall see what happens. 
What one other thing on kind of team selection or whatever, having just mentioned the fullbacks, I I do worry a bit about Emerson Royale. I mean, having said that, a lot didn't work against Wolves. The main thing that didn't work, and I hope this isn't like kind of throwing him under the bus or being a bit unfair, was Emerson Royale as an inverted fullback on the right. Actually, weirdly worked out a bit better for him on the left when he's played there. I just, I don't know. I just, I just think I'd be a bit uncomfortable with him playing there in this game. And I think I've seen a few tweets from people suggesting the same thing. I just think there's got to be a better solution. What are the options that. then? I, I'm not saying there aren't. I mean, any. I guess I mean look, I, I, I've not, I've not seen like Dragasin play much at all, let alone at right. Oh, back. his mum right says back. he's tremendous at right back. Don't worry <laughs> about that. I gather he has played there before. Uh, but the other thing we've heard about him is that his like distribution up in the back isn't great, which makes me worry about like going into midfield and trying to pass the ball. Uh, and then I, wa- I also wonder if he just stick a midfielder out there and just see what happens. Yeah, yeah. Kulusevski could play well. there. Well, or could Hoiberg not play there? I mean, I know I, I, I know people will have their misgivings about his passing as well, but, but also his pace uh, in that high line. Maybe skip. God. Well, please don't have a go at me about this. No, no, you're. Pa- but I just feel I don't. I don't know. I just feel like there are more creative solutions that really just did not work. Jack is staring at the two of us, um, and he don't forget he's a highly paid football expert. As though, as though we're somehow lost our, our minds with the with the list of people we're playing at right back. Is it is it Emerson Royal Royal or no one, Jack? I wouldn't. I mean, I don't think. It, I think it will be Emerson Royal. I I wouldn't mind looking at Skip there. There we go. I think you go. know. I can. I can think of what. I can think of worse ideas. You know, he could do the. He's got a good energy. Pass the ball quite well. Obviously, not. You know, he's not as his delivery's not as good as Poro, Clearly, but he's. Um, I just thought that Royale looked. I mean, I, I. The the big thing is we don't know. I don't know if they've been working on this in training, so it's impossible to to know how easy he could pick it up. But I did think Royale didn't really look great last week it's not his positional ability it's not his pace going backwards out of the high line it's because technically he looks like he's going to lose the ball too often in the middle of the pitch in a team with a very high line which is a disaster and is a hand grade waiting to go off and he just he takes so much time on the ball when he gets it like he can't he just can't move it on quickly like some of his like some of the other players can and um it really slows it just slows Tottenham down basically well I do wonder Having said, Danny, that Glasner's uh, hates defenders and just wants his team to attack, could, could that actually sort of play into Spurs' favour and make that Emerson Royale issue less of a thing? Because the big problem against Wolves was they just let him have the ball a load and it basically meant he was constantly on the ball and Spurs were getting absolutely nowhere. But if Palace are throwing players forward, like, like everything's going to be happening so much more quickly. It's not going to be like Spurs are going to be sat passing the ball around thirty yards out from goal, and he's going to be trying to like pick either needle passes constantly. Things are just going to be happening much quicker. Who knows whether Oliver Glasner will um, adapt to the demands of the Premier League by being a bit more flexible, and also his team can get forced back, and then you can talk all you like about attacking. But if you're forced back into your own box, we'll see what happens. I, I, I tend to agree with Jack, and I'm sure you do as well, James. It will be if, if Poro, and we, we've seen Udogi returns training, but not Poro yet physically have. Is that right? Yeah, I think there have been photos on Instagram and whatever of Udogi, but not Poro. Okay, well, I guess it will be Emerson Royal then. And I hope he has a brilliant, brilliant game. Tears Crystal Palace to shreds and is the man of the match in a 6-0 victory. That's what I really, really hope. 
let me uh, end the podcast with a non-Spurs thing by congratulating Danny Kelly, 18-year-old Celtic player, on making his, prem- his Scottish Premiership debut and scoring the seventh of their goals uh, against um, Dundee. He has replaced Danny Kelly um, over here in Ireland as my favourite player called Danny Kelly, with all due respect to the first Danny Kelly player. Thank you, Jack. Thank you, James. Uh, just to remind you, the show has its uh, official home on X or Twitter, whatever you're calling it these days. And that's at VFTL Podcast. And you can email us as well, VFTL at theathletic.com. And of course, we'd love your views on the game. So use either of those two um, conduits to get in touch with us after the Crystal Palace victory um, for the best Spurs coverage anywhere. And I always say this, and I mean it, um, with, with, with sincerity. You really should make sure you sign up to The Athletic. You can take advantage of their latest offer. It's just one ninety nine a month for 12 months. I simply go to theathletic.com forward slash Spurs pod to subscribe. We're going, to weigh, we're going away now to argue some more about obscure English words with Greek roots. And we're going to do it without Charlie Eckershare, which is pretty brave of us. Till Monday and the next view from the lane. Cheers and bye. The Athletic.